Open up your Bibles, if you brought one, to the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 11. If you don't have a copy of the scripture with you, that's all right. I'm going to have the scriptures with me on the screen. We're continuing through our series on the Lord's Prayer. Got this Sunday and next Sunday. Last two things we're looking at. Today is a difficult sermon. It's not one of those warm and fuzzy ones for a lot of us. You'll see why. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult text, honestly. Last week, Pastor Matt Kurt preached on Matthew 6, 11, where Jesus transitions into our time where he teaches us to pray for our personal needs. The first three prayers are God-centered prayers, God-focused prayers, and then you transition. Where you begin to pray for your personal needs, and the first one is Matthew 6, 11, where it says, give us this day our daily bread. If you missed last week, it was a good sermon. Um, Pastor Matt taught us that that's a prayer where you're literally praying, God, only give me today what I need for today. It's a prayer you're praying of dependence on God. Reminds you God is the provider, not you. And then today, we look at verse 12, the difficult one there, Matthew 6, 12, and Jesus teaches us to pray, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now. What does that mean? Well, let me remind you of something I said two weeks ago. Two weeks ago when I talked about the part of the prayer where Jesus says your will be done, means God, I don't want what I want, I want what you want. I talked about how that was hands down the most difficult part of the Lord's prayer to pray. Because oftentimes what God wants for our life is not what we want for our life, and so that's the most difficult. Well, this next part that we just looked at, Forgive us our debts as we forgive those that have debts against us. In my opinion, it's not the most difficult one to pray, but it's the most convicting part of the Lord's prayer to pray. I'm gonna tell you why. Because this prayer was never, and I want you to hear this. This prayer was never meant to be prayed without you first evaluating your own sinfulness. Specifically, the sin of unforgiveness in your heart. If you have a, if, if you're saved and you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. This, this prayer, as you pray it, is meant to convict you of that sin and then cause you to repent of it as you walk out of your prayer time. So let's jump in. Let's start unpacking it. Look at verse 11 again. Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, Jesus teaches us to pray, Father, Forgive us of our debts. Now, to get our minds around what he's saying, you gotta understand what he means by the word debts. Now, when we hear the word debt, what comes to mind? We think about financial stuff, right? We think about it in terms of monetary terms, but when Jesus is talking about debts, he's not talking about money, he's not talking about financial debt, he's actually talking about sin. I'll explain why here in a minute, but he's talking about asking God for the forgiveness of our spiritual debts. Now, why does he do that? Why does he teach us to pray? He's speaking to believers. Why does he teach us to pray for the forgiveness of sin? Because one of the things we know is that the day we trust in Christ is our Lord and our Savior. All of our sins are forgiven. Amen? Okay. The moment you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, every sin you've ever committed and every sin you will ever commit is completely and totally forgiven. And so why does Jesus teach us to pray, Father, forgive me of my spiritual debts? All right. Well, there's two kinds 
of forgiveness of sins that you and I need to pray for as believers. Okay, I'm gonna show them to you. A couple of fancy seminary terms. Two kinds of forgiveness of sin that we receive as Christians. The first one is called, what is it? Positional forgiveness. It's hard to say, positional forgiveness. Okay, I'll talk about what that means in a second. The second one is called practical forgiveness. And I'll explain those. Let's look at the first one. What do I mean by positional forgiveness? Well, here's the thing. Before you and I trusted in Christ as our Lord and Savior, what was our position? Like what was our standing before we became Christians? Well, the scripture teaches us that our standing before we trust in Christ the Lord and Savior is that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. That was your position. Scripture teaches us before Christ entered in the picture and saved us, we were enemies of God. That was our position. But Jesus died on a cross and paid all the penalty of our sin. And so in the moment that you and I trust in Jesus Christ, As our Lord and Savior, he forgives all of our sins and we are what's called justified. We become justified. That is a a judicial term that means that you and I, in the moment that happens, are declared not guilty, forever not guilty. Your position changes in the moment you got saved. The moment you trusted in Christ, your Lord and Savior, he forgives all your sins. And while you were once dead in your trespasses and your sins, you are now alive in Christ Jesus. When you were once uh, an enemy of God, your new position is now that you are a son or daughter of God. And so in the moment you trust in Christ, you positionally are forgiven. And here's the amazing thing about that. You only have to do that one time. You only have to do that one time. That can never be taken away from you. That will never change. You have been justified, declared not guilty, and so now your position is one of complete righteousness as a son or daughter of Almighty God, okay? Now, here's the other kind of forgiveness, though, that you and I need to ask for, and this is the kind of forgiveness we need on an ongoing basis, and this is called practical forgiveness, another fancy seminary term. Practical forgiveness. Now, even though you've been completely forgiven as a Christian of all your sin and your position has now changed and you are a child of God, declared not guilty forever, what do you and I still do? We sin, right? We sin. And what I'm about to show you, as a matter of fact, is that pretty much all of us sin on a daily basis. Now, when Jesus says that we're we're supposed to pray for the forgiveness of our debts, God, forgive me my debt, he's not talking about you praying for salvation. He's not talking about you praying for your positional forgiveness. He's talking about asking God for forgiveness that you and I need every single day of our lives because even though we're saved, we sometimes continue in sin. Now, here's the question though, and this is important. Why does Jesus call them debts? Why does Jesus call our sin debts? I learned something this week, and this is kind of weird. I've been studying the Bible a long time, been to seminary a long time. I've even written a commentary on the gospel of John and I have never, somehow I missed this in all my years of doing this. It seems really simple, but here's what I learned this week. Never heard this preach, never seen this. There's actually five words for sin in the New Testament. Did you know that? Five different words for sin and they each represent a different kind of sin. 
All right, I'm gonna walk through them really quickly with you because it's helpful in understanding what Jesus is asking us to pray for. Well, the first kind of sin is Greek word, all these are Greek words. It's called hamartia, hamartia. And that gets translated into English as the word we know as sin. The definition of that is to miss the target or miss the mark. You may have heard that before if you've spent some time in church. That's the word that shows up the most in the scripture. It's just a general term for sin. It means miss the mark, miss the target. Back in the day when the, when the scripture was written, if you were shooting a bow and arrow and you were shooting at a target, it had a bullseye. You shot the arrow. If you missed the bullseye, you missed the mark. That was called hamartia. There was a name for it. It means you missed the mark. Well, here's the deal. One of the things we know about God is that he is God. Amen? He's God. Not us, he's God. And so he gets to say what's right and wrong. He gets to set the standard. He gets to say what our mark is that we're trying to hit. So for example, if he says, um, you're not supposed to lie, that's the target. And if you lie, then you have missed the mark and you've sinned and you've fallen short of his glory. Okay, that's hamartia, first kind of sin, general term. The second one, a little more specific, it's called paraptoma. Paraptoma, that gets translated in English as trespass. It's a different kind of sin, and it is the unintentional slipping across the line of right and wrong. There are sins you commit as a believer that are actually unintentional. They're called trespassing. If you were hiking and you actually did not mean to, but you trespass on somebody's property, you did something that was wrong, but you didn't mean to do it. My wife and I, Jennifer, did that one time on a, we were on a trip to Hawaii and we just started hiking one day and took off and we didn't know it at the time, but we had gone onto some dude's private property and he came out, he was not happy. Now here's the deal. We did something wrong, but we didn't mean to do it, okay? That's paraptoma. And it's these kind of sins that all of us commit at times in our lives where we get caught up in a moment of, of impulse and a moment of passion and we unintentionally slip across the line of right and wrong into sin. That's paraptoma. Now, third kind of sin in the Bible, New Testament is called parabasis. That also gets translated into English as trespass. And this is a little bit more intentional than paraptoma. This is the intentional crossing of the line of right and wrong. Now, here's the thing. This is the kind of sin, again, I had no idea the Bible got into this much specificity about different kinds of sin. A little more intentional, but it's the kind of sin where you get, you still get caught up in passion and impulse, and you kind of know what's right and wrong, but you do what's wrong anyway. A little more intentional than parapeptoma, parabasis. This would be like if somebody said something to you, um, maybe you knew them, maybe you didn't, and they were, they was really insulting to you, and they. They said something super insulting to you and, and you kind of feel it. You start getting angry. Now, I know, I know y'all don't ever do that, but I do that sometimes. Somebody says something insulting to me and I start getting angry. I start getting mad. I start getting my brain stem. You know, we're not thinking clearly. And in that moment, passion's kind of coming up. The impulse is kind of coming. I kind of know what's right and wrong. And I have a little moment of clarity, but I just breeze past that thing and I let it fly, right? That's parabasis. It's a trespass, a little more intentional crossing of the line of right and wrong, but it's still caught up in your impulse and your passion. Now, number four is the intense kind of sin. That's anomia. And it's translated as 
lawlessness. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 7. He said, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And this, um, that's how it's translated. And, and this is just outright premeditated rebellion against God. Anomia is the kind of sin when you know exactly what's right and wrong. And in a clear-headed, premeditated, intentional kind of way, you do it. Okay, that's lawlessness. That's anomia. Now, the fifth kind is what we're talking about today. It's ophilima, which is translated as debt. And this is what debts are. It's, just, it's a sin. But it's just a failure to complete an obligation or duty. That's a debt, ophilma. It's a failure to complete an obligation or duty. Now, here's the thing. More often than not, these are unintentional. I think they can obviously sometimes be intentional, but more often than not, they're unintentional. And it's simply a failure as a Christian to do something that you're supposed to be doing that God has given you to do. Now, here's something important for you to hear. This kind of sin, ophelia, debt, we can make a pretty strong argument is the kind of sin that you and I commit every single day of our lives, maybe even multiple times, okay? Why do I say that? Well, I want you guys to think about it. Last week, there are a lot of you here that may not have committed anomia one time. You're good people. You did not commit lawlessness once. Like you didn't murder anybody one time last week. You may have wanted to, that's fair basis, right? But you didn't. And so you didn't commit lawlessness one time. You didn't commit adultery. You didn't steal anything. You, and so you think, I'm good. <laughs> I didn't sin one time. But here's a question for you. Last week, did you fulfill every single one of your obligations and duties to the Lord? No, you did not. And neither did I. How do I know that? Because in the New Testament alone, in the New Testament alone, there are 1,050 separate commands and obligations and duties that the scripture gives to us to follow. So is this what it looks like to follow Christ? In the New Testament alone, 1,050, I'll ask you again. Did you fulfill every single one of your obligations and duties to the Lord? No, you did not, and neither did I. If you don't believe me, I'll give you some examples. The scripture says that you are to seek first the kingdom of God. Last week, did you seek first the kingdom of God every moment of your life? No, you didn't, neither did I. Um, scripture says that you are to steward your finances in a way that gives God glory and shows dependence on him. Last month, did you do that? Statistics say that 80% of Christians did not. Men pick on you for a second. Men, scripture commands us and calls us to love our wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Did you do that every moment of your life last week? I did, but I imagine y'all probably didn't, right? No, I did not, right? Wives, scripture says that you are to honor and show respect to your husband, even if he doesn't deserve it. Did you do that every moment? Last week, you probably didn't. Did you? Pray, how about this? Did you pray unceasingly? Scripture says too. Did you? Uh, did you not worry at all? <laughs> scripture says too. Did you love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength every moment last week? No, you did not. 
and I did not either. And so while it's true, hopefully, that you did not murder everybody or anybody, it's, it's also true that you and I did not fulfill every one of our obligations and duties to the Lord. He's God, he gets to set the standard. You and I did, did not do those. They're unintentional, but we didn't do them. We missed the mark, we fell short of his glory, we fell short of his holiness, and each time we didn't, every single one of those are sin. And they're called debts. Now, for some of you, this is gonna be really helpful and you understanding your own sinfulness. For some of you, not all of us, because some of us have no problem understanding how big of a sinner we are, right? Some of you, this is gonna help you understand your own need for forgiveness. This is kind of the story of the prodigal son. There's actually two sons in the story of the prodigal son, right? There's the younger brother that, that goes to a faraway land and loses his darn mind and sins like crazy. Right, and he comes to his senses in a pig pen. He's like, I'm a sinner, I got to get right. And so he goes home. But then you've got the older brother that nobody preaches about. And, and Jesus talks about that this guy had issues too, but he just didn't even realize it. You know why? Because he was a good kid. He was a good kid. He didn't go to the faraway land, do stupid, crazy stuff. And so he thought he was good. And the point of the prodigal son is that both brothers need salvation. Now, some of y'all in here, older brother types, you are good moral people. You've never murdered anybody. You don't lie. You don't steal. You don't cheat. You were a good kid growing up. You were a virgin when you got married. You don't party. You still don't party. Don't drink. Don't chew. Don't go with girls that do. Like you are a good moral person. <laughs> and what I've noticed is that because of that, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes, not always. Sometimes it's hard for people like that to realize their own sinfulness and their own need of daily forgiveness. This concept of debts is gonna help you do that. For example, I dated a girl um, right after I got saved um, and right before I met Jennifer. It was a girl that, it was the first girl I'd ever really met that genuinely walked with Jesus. And she was a good moral young lady. She was pure as the driven snow. Good church girl. First, it was like, I think maybe the third, sorry, I had a, I had a procedure this week and they anyway long story that's why I'm coughing but anyway so I we went on this date it was like our third date I'll never forget this we were sitting there in some restaurant and she looked at me we were kind of getting serious kind of like each other side we were gonna start dating and she looked at me and she said hey I need to tell you something and I was like okay she said it's our third date notice we're kind of getting serious she goes that's great I like you and she said look I want to tell you something if we start dating and you ever lay a finger on me before the day we get married, I will dump you on the spot. I said, yes, ma'am, right? I did not lay a finger on her, right? This was a woman that was pure as the driven snow. And I just, I hung out with her and she just, she was. She was great church kids, never drank in her life. She didn't cuss. She read her Bible every day. She was just holy. And I asked her one time, I said, hey, have you ever sinned before? True story, you know what she said? True story, she looked at me, she thought for a second, that was, which was fascinating to me. She kind of went like that. And she said, yeah, I did. I thought a cuss word one time, okay? Here's what she meant by that. Now she's 19, she's a godly girl, she's friends with Jennifer now, she's married a pastor, great woman, she probably knows the difference now, but what she meant at the time what she meant at the time is she had not committed anomia to her 
knowledge, right? Never killed anybody, never stole anything, never gotten drunk, never done anything like that. But what she didn't realize at the time is that she, at the same time, was not fulfilling, because nobody does, all the obligations the Lord had placed on her life. And because of that, she needed forgiveness on a daily basis, just like everybody else does. Debts, not fulfilling duties and obligations. By the way, something hit me this week. I'm convinced this is what Paul was talking about when Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. Have y'all ever thought about why Paul said that? Paul, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He's the apostle Paul for crying out loud. He, this, he said this after he was saved. After he was saved, the apostle Paul said, I sin more than everybody. And I can't tell you how many times I read that. I go, no, you don't, Paul. It's false humility. I'm convinced that's what he's talking about. It hit me this week. Paul knew probably better than anybody what the word of God said he needed to be doing on a daily basis. And because he knew better than anybody what the word of God said he needed to be doing on a daily basis, he knew better than anybody that he was not doing it on a daily. Have you ever thought why he said, I I don't do what I wanna do? That's what he's talking about. It's these daily obligations to the Lord that God places on our lives. And we fall short of that every single day. And so when Jesus teaches us to pray, Father, forgive me of my debts. That's the kind of sin that he's talking about, right? It's these these sins where we don't fulfill our obligations. Now, I wanna wanna show you, go back to the text here, Matthew 6, 11. I wanna show you something. Thought was kind of interesting. In Matthew 6, 11, he says, give us this day our daily bread. And look at 12, he says, and forgive us our debts. Now, here's what hit me. That's one sentence. It's really kind of one thought. There's no punctuation in the Greek. I don't know if you know that. There's no commas, no periods, no exclamation marks. It's one thought. Those two things are connected. And so Jesus is essentially saying, look, when you start praying for your personal needs in your prayer life, you pray these God-centered prayers, you pray for you know, all the stuff you're supposed to pray for, God-centered, you transition, praying for your personal needs. There's gonna be two things that you need to consistently pray for on a daily basis. Number one, you're praying for the daily provision of your needs from the Lord in a way that recognizes that he's the provider. And there's gonna be the second thing that you need to daily pray for, the second daily need, and that is the daily forgiveness of your sin debts, your debts. Now, in light of that, it's kind of one thought, you're daily gonna need provision, you're daily gonna need the forgiveness of your sins. How would you expect Jesus to, to say this line? I would expect Jesus to teach us how to pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us this day our daily debts. That's how I'd expect him to teach us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us this day our daily debts. But that's not what he teaches us to pray. Now everybody look at me. Jesus is teaching us how to pray for the forgiveness of sins. And he's he's basically saying because he uses debts, these are the kind of sins you have every day of your life. But how he teaches us to pray for the forgiveness of our sins is when this thing starts getting really, really, really convicting. Watch what he teaches us to pray. Matthew 6, 11. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
That's how he teaches you to pray for the forgiveness of your daily sins. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. What does that mean? Well, the word as, or the phrase as we also is key. Now listen, it's a phrase that means to the extent. It's a phrase that means in proportion to. So everybody do not miss this. Listen really carefully. This is literally what Jesus is teaching you and I to pray. He's teaching us to pray, Father, forgive my sins to the extent that I forgive other people's sins against me. He's teaching us to pray. Father, forgive my daily sins against you in proportion to the extent that I forgive other people's daily sins against me. So this is a prayer where you are literally asking God on a daily basis to only forgive you to the extent that you're willing to forgive other people. That's when it starts getting convicting, right? Now, why would Jesus teach us to pray that? Well, at the very beginning of the message, I made a statement. I said, this is convicting because it's impossible to pray this prayer without you first evaluating your own sinfulness, specifically the sin of unforgiveness towards other people. Because if you're a Christian that is actually dwelt indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God and you're walking around with unforgiveness in your heart towards somebody else, this prayer is meant to convict you of that sin and get you to repent of it. For example, let's imagine you, you're in your time of prayer. You're in your prayer closet and you start off and say, Lord, today I want your name to be exalted in my life. I want your name to be lifted above my name. I want you to be first. And then you transition and say, Lord, I, I pray for your kingdom to come. God, I want you to show up in power in my life. I want you to be the king. I want you to rule and reign. And then you say, Lord, I want your will to be done. I don't want what I want. I don't want what you want. And then you, or I don't want what I want. And now transition and you start praying for the provision of your daily bread. Lord, I, I only want you to give me today what I need for today so that I can recognize your provision in my life. And then you pray, Father, forgive my sins only to the extent that I forgive other people's sins against me. And then you stop and you think about it for a second. And then you're like, wait a minute, God, take back, take back, take back on that one. God, scratch that one off the list real quick. Because as you were praying that prayer, it hits you that you were harsh and you were unforgiving towards somebody that had offended you or that had sinned against you earlier. And you just, you just asked God, God, would you, would you forgive me to the extent that I forgive other people? And so what, literally, because you were harsh towards somebody the other day that had sinned against you, you literally just asked God to be harsh towards you when you sinned against him. It's convicting. And so Jesus' whole point in praying this prayer is that for you and I, not to roll up on God in our time of prayer, expecting him to forgive our sins if we have not been forgiving towards other people. His whole point in this, Jesus' whole point is for you and I not to expect God to be gentle and tender 
in dealing with our daily sins if we have not been gentle and tender in dealing with the daily sins of other people against you and me. And so when we pray, God, please forgive my sin to the extent that I forgive other people's sins against me. Yes, it's a prayer of asking God's forgiveness for your daily sins, but it is more than that. It's more than that. It's a prayer that's meant to remind you and I on a daily basis that as followers of Christ, you and I are not just a forgiven people, but as followers of Christ, we are meant to be a forgiving people. Daily basis, you pray that prayer to remind you that as a follower of Jesus, you're not only a forgiving, forgiven person, but we're called to be a forgiving person in light of the forgiveness that we've been shown. So with the rest of the sermon today, real quick, I'm gonna give you three reasons why praying this prayer is so critical. Not only you pray it, but you live it out. Three reasons, doing real fast, and we'll be done. Why don't you turn with me to Colossians 3.12. Colossians 3.12. All right, here's reason number one. It's a critical prayer to pray, more importantly, live out. Number one, forgiving people that have sinned against you is a command of scripture. Real super easy. Forgiving people that have sinned against you is a command of scripture. Colossians 3.12, let's see one of them. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and so he's speaking to believers here, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, which means strength under control, patience, bearing with one another. And then Paul gets crazy here. He says, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the Lord's forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Look at Ephesians 4.31. Paul said, let all bitterness, let everybody, everybody together say that second word with me. Let God, that's a convicting word, isn't it? Let all bitterness Wrath, there's a couple words here I want you to just notice because you're gonna see them again here in a second. Wrath and anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. Said in verse 32, be kind to one another. Tender hearted, forgiving one another. Why, Paul, are we supposed to be kind to one another? tender hearted towards each other and forgiving each other. Why? He says, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Scripture could not be any clearer that in light of the unimaginable grace and kindness and patience and tenderness that the Lord has shown you and I in dealing with our sin, that our response is we are to in turn show that same grace and tenderness and kindness towards people that sin against us. Number two, this is when this thing starts getting hard. Number two, at best, consistent harshness and forgiveness towards others demonstrates spiritual immaturity. At best, 
Consistent harshness and unforgiveness towards others demonstrates spiritual immaturity. 1 Corinthians 3.1, Paul is writing to a church. And he says, but I, brothers, he's speaking to Christians there, brothers. He said, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He said, I fed you with milk, not solid food. Why? He says, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you're not yet ready. So Paul is talking to Christians here, and he's talking about when he came to them. He says, when he came to them, he could not teach them the deep things of God. He had to treat them like little baby Christians. Why does Paul say? that he couldn't give them real spiritual food, that he couldn't go deep with them, but he had to treat them like little, little baby Christians. He says in verse three, 1 Corinthians 3, 3, he says, here's why I had to treat you like little baby, immature Christians. He says, for you are still of the flesh. Now he's talking to Christians, but he says, you're still of the flesh, which means you're acting like lost people. And he says, here's why you're acting like lost people, for why there is jealousy and strife among you. This is so crazy to me. Paul's speaking to a church and he says, I couldn't go deep with you guys. I couldn't teach you the deep things of God because you aren't being kind to one another. You wanna know what going deep with God looks like? Start being kind. That's step number one. And then we'll go from there. And so listen, I'm preaching it myself right now just as much as I'm preaching it to anybody else here. But I don't care how much biblical knowledge you have. I don't care how many Bible studies you go to over the years, if you're a person that is consistently harsh towards people you disagree with, if you're a person that consistently is unforgiving towards people that have sinned against you, the scripture, not me, but the Bible says that at best, that is evidence of spiritual immaturity in your life. Why do I say at best? At best, that's a mark of spiritual immaturity. Let's go to point number three, last one. Because at worst, consistent harshness and unforgiveness towards others demonstrates an unregenerate heart. At worst, consistent harshness and unforgiveness demonstrates an unregenerate heart. In other words, if harshness and unforgiveness towards others is a consistent pattern in your life, you may just be spiritually immature or you may not be saved. And here's the deal, guys. Everybody at times is harsh towards other people, everybody is, it's at times, unless you're just Mother Teresa, right? We're humans, it happens. But if there's a consistent pattern of it, unforgiveness, harsh in your life, that needs to give you pause because those things are marks of someone that doesn't, they're evidences of someone that doesn't know Jesus. And there's a lot of places, a lot of places in the scripture I could prove that to you real quickly. I wanna show you one place excuse me, where the scripture talks about this, that this is evidence of an unregenerate heart. And it's in Romans 1. I saw something again I've never seen before in Romans 1 a couple of months ago. But let me set it up this way. There are times in the Bible where God looks, and by the way, I've, I've never fallen off the stage but one time in my life. And so I've told, heard people tell me this makes them nervous. Y'all just trust me, right? I've only done it once. But there's these times in the Bible where God looks at the sin of a people looks at a culture and he sees their sin, right? And the scripture says that he gets to a point where he just takes his hand off the culture and the scripture says he gives them over to their sin. 
Their sin is just so gross that he removes all restraints. He's like, y'all wanna go crazy? Y'all go crazy. And he removes his hand. He gives them over to their sin. And then once God gives them over to their sin, then it gets real bad. Then it gets real ugly, real gross. And if I were to ask you this question, I'll shout it out, but if I were to ask you, what are some of the sins that might pop up in a culture that God has removed his hand from, what would you say? What would be some of the sins we might see out there in a culture that God has removed his hands from? I think some of us would, a lot of us would answer sexual morality. We would say same-sex marriage, stuff like that. I think we would probably answer transgenderism. Got three, four, five-year-old kids where parents are letting them choose their gender. Guys, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. That's crazy. It's crazy. I think you got women. No, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm gonna pop you here in a second, so don't clap. <laughs> We're letting men compete in women's athletics. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And then you got abortion. You know, if those are things that you would say are evidences of God removing his hand for a culture, you would be right. The scripture straight running says it, Romans 1.18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed, in the Greek, that's a verb that means right now. So the wrath of God right now is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Watch this, verse 24, he says, therefore, God gave them up and the lust of their hearts, here it is, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. What does that sound like to you? Well, impurity, the evidence that God has given a culture up is impurity, that just means all forms of sexual morality. And the second one is dishonoring their bodies among themselves. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like transgenderism to me. Keeps going. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. What are the dishonorable passions, Paul? He tells us. He says, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. You've got liberal theologians out there doing mental gymnastics, trying to make that mean what it doesn't mean. I'm gonna tell you what you think it means is exactly what it means. It's talking about homosexuality. Then Romans 1, 28, it keeps going. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he says it again, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then I want you to watch what Paul says. He gives the final evidences in a culture that God has removed his hand from. Romans 1, 29, he says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil. And he starts kind of hitting close to home. He says, covetousness. Malice, you remember that word? He was talking to Christians, Paul did, about malice. They're full of envy, murder, quarreling, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips. Slanderers means they speak evil of others, means backbiter. Haters of God, quick-tempered, proud, boastful. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, 
without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Sagemont, when Paul was describing what it looked like for God to remove his hand from a culture and give a culture over to their wickedness, yes, sexual sin and transgenderism and abortion and homosexuality, make the list, but so does gossip. So does being unkind. So does speaking evil against someone. So does quarreling. So does being unloving. So does being unmerciful. The Holy Spirit inspired word of God just said that gossip and slander and quarreling is on the same level as homosexuality, transgenderism. They are all marks of somebody that does not know Jesus. And that's scary to me because there's never been any place in my entire life where I have seen more gossip and slander and backbiting and quarreling than the church of Jesus Christ. Ever. And I'm gonna scare you too. Because a person that is consistently unkind, consistently harsh, and consistently unforgiving towards people that have, that have offended them and hurt them and sinned against them, only one of two things are true. One is that is a mark of spiritual immaturity in your life. Or number two, it is a mark that you've never personally received the forgiveness of God yourself. Because a person that realizes they were dead in their trespasses and in their sins, and God forgives them, you're gonna be a forgiving person. Listen to this quote about Thomas Manson. He said, there is none so tender to others. There is none so tender to others as they which have received mercy themselves, for they know how gently God has dealt with them. Do you know how gently God has dealt with you in the forgiveness of your sins? There is none so gentle as those that realize the gentleness God has showed them. And so Jesus says, here's what I want you to pray. I want you to pray, Father, forgive me today to the extent that I forgive other people. And that is to remind us that when you and I were still in our sin, it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance. It's a prayer on top of that to remind us that we, you and I sin debts. We sin every single day of our lives. And yet he shows us unimaginable patience and grace and kindness and tenderness and mercy and love. And so when we pray that prayer, Father, forgive me, forgive my sin, only to the extent that I forgive other people's sins, you get up from that prayer closet, you walk out the door, somebody offends you, hurts you, sins against you, and then you are able to show them kindness and mercy and grace and tenderness and love. That's how. A forgiven people are forgiven people. I'm gonna end with two quick stories and I'll be done. We'll pray. As I was studying for this, I, I came across a, a, a little quick story about this. It's by a guy named Robert Louis Stevenson. You may have heard his name before. He was uh, the author of Treasure Island, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I did not know this. He was a devout Christian. Every morning he would get with his kids and his, his wife around the breakfast table and they would um, have devotions together. They'd read the Bible. And at the end of their time, he, uh, he'd pray the Lord's Prayer and they'd get up and go about their day. 
And his wife was writing about one morning that he did this and they did their devotions and they got to the part where they did the Lord's prayer and he prayed, our father in heaven, how would be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. And Robert Louis Stevenson stopped. He said he got up from the kitchen table and he just walks out the door. And his wife wrote in this letter where she told the story, she said that he'd been sick, he'd been ill lately. So she thought he was ill and was just going out the door because he didn't feel good or whatever. So she follows him out. And she looks at him and grabs his attention and said, hey, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm fine. I just, when I got to that part of the prayer, I realized and remembered that I had been harsh to someone yesterday that had sinned against me. And I can't pray anymore until I go and make that right. He took off. That's a picture. It's a prayer that's meant to remind us on a daily basis of the kindness and forgiveness we've received through Christ Jesus. And in turn, we offer that to other people. It's a beautiful picture of it. And I can't, I'll end with this. I can't tell you how many times that God has used this prayer right here in my life to convict me of my lack of forgiveness in my heart. Jennifer and I will be in an argument. I know that might shock you, but we do. We get in arguments. And it'll be one of those good ones where I think she's wrong. She thinks I'm wrong. She's being a punk. I'm being a punk. Neither one of us wants to offer forgiveness. And so we just kind of unreconciled. We just leave. I'll go to to the office to work on my sermon and I make the mistake of praying. Not think about her right now, Lord, I'm gonna think about you. Lord, I pray that your name would be exalted in my life today. And the Holy Spirit whispers, if you want Jesus' name to be exalted, go reconcile with your wife. I ignore that and I keep going. I'm like, Lord, I pray today your kingdom would come, I pray that your kingdom would show up in power. You're the king. So Lord, I pray that you would rule and that you would reign. And the Holy Spirit whispers, if you wanna obey God, obey God by going and reconciling with your wife. And I ignore that and I keep going. And I say, God, I don't, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. I, don't, I want your will to be done. And he says, well, God's will is, is that you reconcile with your wife. And I ignore that. And I, I transition and I get to the daily bread part. God, give me today what I need for today. Help me live in dependence on you. And Holy Spirit really doesn't say much. So I think maybe he's left me alone. And so I get to that part and I pray, Father, forgive me of my sins to the extent that I forgive other people. And the Holy Spirit says, are you sure that's what you want? You sure? And I say, dadgummit, you're right, Holy Spirit. And I forgive her in my heart. And I go ask for her forgiveness. But Matt, what, what if a person does not deserve my forgiveness? Church, you didn't deserve his forgiveness, but he gave it to you anyway. Amen. But Matt, what if this person is my enemy? What if I like really don't like this person? Well, you're an enemy of God, but he made you his son or daughter. But Matt, what, what if this person has like legit hurt me, legit sinned against me, wounded me? Am I just supposed to forgive them? Well, last time I checked, it was your sin and my sin that put nails to the hands and feet of Jesus. 
I'd say that probably hurt. And he forgave you and he forgave me. If you've been harsh towards someone, I'm done. I'm, I'm praying. Have you have been harsh towards somebody? Is there someone that you have a lack of forgiveness? You've been carrying that around for a long time. Can't read far in this book. For the scripture says, in light of how God has forgiven you, you go forgive. When you look at our Savior, how else could we respond?